You're listening to Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods independent sponsor podcast. Deal by Deal invites you to conversations with experienced independent sponsors and other private equity professionals. Join McGuire Woods partners Greg Hover, Jeff Brooker, and Rebecca Brophy as they explore middle market private equity M&A to provide you with timely insights and relevant takeaways. Hi, this is Rebecca Brophy. Welcome to another episode of Deal by Deal. Today, we're speaking with my partner, Holly Buckley, who is the head of our healthcare department at Macquarie Woods, as well, well as Harry Eichelberger, who is with Archimedes Healthcare Investors. Holly, do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Sure. Thanks, Rebecca, and thanks for having me on the podcast. As Rebecca mentioned, I'm the chair of the Maguire Woods Healthcare Group. I spend most of my time in the private equity space on both platform and uh, platform deals and platform add-on deals and ongoing support work. Also, I spend a fair amount of time in the traditional healthcare space with hospitals and health systems. Uh, but very excited to be here today and to join this discussion with you and Harry. Harry, would you like to introduce yourself a bit? Yeah, great. Thank you for hosting me. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Holly. Thank you to the McGuire Woods team. I'm Harry Eichelberger, founder of Archimedes Health Investor, an independent sponsor focused on uh, health investing. I've been doing healthcare, private equity, growth equity, and venture capital investing uh, since 2003. The first part of my career was spent at a upper middle market uh, buyout firm called Oak Hill Capital. I left in 2015 to found Archimedes, and since then have built four platforms all in healthcare. Yeah, Harry, thanks for that. And you know, I've had the pleasure with working with you on some of your platforms, and you've been thoroughly impressed with you and your team. You gave a little bit of the background of your kind of genesis in private equity and how you moved into being an independent sponsor. Can you give a little bit more feedback on really what was going through your brain when you made the jump into the independent sponsor world? Sure. Well, the large cap sponsor world, which I came from, was a great learning experience. We took a very deep dive approach to investing, putting business plans together, thinking about the long term, thinking about trends over 10, 20, 30 year period, and meeting executives and key opinion leaders across healthcare to really form a view on what were the exciting places to invest. One of the things that's happened in the more mature private equity sector is that funds are raising larger and larger funds and deploying bigger checks faster. Turns out if you want to make a lot of money uh, in large cap private equity, the way to do it is not necessarily by generating the best returns, but by generating really good returns consistently at scale and at volume. While that's good for large institutional investors and it's great for the private equity firms who are doing well at it, the lifestyle is kind of a drag. You wind up looking at lots and lots of auctions. It's very competitive. There's not a lot of time to get to know each portfolio company or each deal before you close it. And then when you do close, it's uh, on to the next one. And so as my old firm matured and started looking at larger deals, I just found that my heart wasn't in it trying to find these big companies that everybody else was looking for. What I thought was exciting in healthcare 
was the lower middle market and growth equity, where there's more of a need for capital, there's more of a need for the expertise that a sponsor can bring, and there's more of an opportunity to shape strategy and build companies. And so it became clear that the exciting part of the market was not where I was spending my time, and I wanted to go do something a little bit more entrepreneurial. So, Harry, as that's fascinating and certainly can see how that transition made a lot of sense. How did you originally get into the healthcare space? Was it fortuitous or was it very much by design? It was a little bit process of elimination. So, I was a generalist as an investment banking analyst and then moved briefly into a role doing technology investing on the buy side. It wasn't that exciting to me. Then I quickly transitioned into healthcare. Healthcare is so daunting if you're if you're coming at it from outside. I really spent a lot of time trying to put the pieces together for you know how the system works and really enjoyed the public policy piece of healthcare. It took a long time. You know, it was a challenge to try to learn the business of investing, the business of private equity, and at the same time learn the healthcare industry. But once once you invest that time and understand it, it's great fun to find problems that need fixing in healthcare. I couldn't agree more, and I think healthcare is by far the best spot to be in. How would you advise folks who want to get more in tune with the healthcare industry and become more expert to do so? There's obviously a lot to be learned by just learning on the job, but how did you get smart in the healthcare space? So we were pretty deliberate about trying to pick our spots within healthcare. We would put together very detailed business plans, starting with demographic trends, then moving into different subsectors within healthcare who were going to be long-term winners and losers. And then those are pretty obvious places to start when you look at business planning. And then the thing we we took it a a step deeper and spend a lot of time on business models. And this is where I think investors, whether it's a new investor or a seasoned investor, really are well served by not just looking at a subsector, but how do the companies within that subsector bring value to their customers? How are they paid for bringing that value to the customers? And oftentimes, you know, different companies grow up with different models, and it can wind up really being a difference between winners and losers. As an example, we spent time in physician services in the radiation oncology space in the mid-2000s, which if you're in healthcare services, it's a great place to be, but radiation oncology was probably one of the worst given the reimbursement environment. We set up our business, however, to be really closely aligned with the physicians and therefore had a, a much better partnership and much more flexibility when the reimbursement cuts happened. All the physicians came around the table with the management team to think about how to navigate them. By contrast, there were other competitors in the sector who paid the physicians a fixed salary. And so when reimbursement got cut, the management company took those cuts 100% to the bottom line, and the physicians still expected to get paid their same salary. You know, it's easy to 
think about demographics and the aging baby boomers and find growth that way, but it's important to dig a layer deeper uh, and understand the unit economics and the alignment and business models within those uh, subsectors. I have a follow-up question for you, Harry, on that. I mean, obviously, there was the a series of roll-ups that happened in, in healthcare 10, 20 years ago. Do you view the current roll-up strategies as being drastically different from, a, from an alignment perspective than, than the last time around? Yes, absolutely. So I was not around for physician services roll-ups uh, 1.0 in the late 90s. Been in this industry a long time, but not that long. But I was there to see the aftermath of a number of these PPMs that blew up. And essentially, the reason that they didn't work out is because there was no alignment between the physicians and the management company. It was essentially physicians would contribute their practices to this larger entity. Their incomes would go down because that slice of income that was taken away from the physicians was what turned into EBITDA for the PPM. And then the PPM provided very little in the way of management oversight or systems or ways to improve clinically or operationally to the physicians. It was strictly a financial trade. Let's pull together a bunch of doctors, cut their salaries, turn it into EBITDA, and then take it public. And it didn't last because there was nothing about that business model that was really built to last. As the physicians became disgruntled because they weren't making much money and they weren't getting much in exchange for the deal, the answer, instead of trying to create more alignment or more value or partner with the physicians more, the answer was do more deals. Fill the leaky bucket with more partnerships and you know, the whole thing came unwound pretty quickly. I contrast that now with the way we partner with physicians today, where the most important thing we think about is alignment with the doctors, and we get that alignment in a number of different ways. So one way is just their day-to-day compensation is productivity-driven. So the we want to encourage the physicians to keep working hard, and those that work the hardest and see the most patients should should obviously see their incomes improve. The second way we create alignment is through sharing mechanisms. We we really make sure that we're bringing value to the doctors, value in terms of management services, access to IT, investment in systems, and as we see benefits from that, oftentimes the physicians have, have a way of sharing in those benefits. And then the third way that we create alignment with the physicians is through equity ownership in the parent company. We get our partners to think like equity holders. We treat them like true partners. They hold equity just like my investors and I do in the company. I tell them, you know, that they, on the one hand, they're working for the MSO, but on the other hand, I'm working for them because I'm trying to generate equity returns for their rollover equity, just like the rest of my investors. Those three ways of creating alignment ensure that we're all 
thinking for the long term, thinking about how to, instead of just turn this into some kind of quick flip to take public like the PPMs of the 90s or some kind of haphazard roll-up, which still exists in some specialties today, we're thinking for the long term, we're trying to take a number of individual physician practices and turn them to an institution that has much more staying power and longevity. Harry, that's that's really interesting. And I think both Holly and I have seen in practice how you work really hard to align everyone's goals between the physicians, between your investor group, between Archimedes, in a way that just kind of ultimately makes the big picture ongoing success make sense to everyone. One of the questions I have in being really familiar with your work on what I would put as in the more complicated spectrum of independent sponsor healthcare deals is when you first started out doing healthcare transactions, can you talk about what what those look like in terms of EV and in terms of complicated factors like number of physicians? Did that really, and and number of investors you work with, did that grow over time or or you really kind of your whole career been shooting whales? It's a good question and it's a it's a real differentiator between an independent sponsor and a more traditional sponsor, and that is the constraint around deal size. There are many larger sponsors, institutional sponsors, they're not allowed to look at a deal under $50 million in equity or under $100 million or $200 million or something like that. And the flexibility of an independent sponsor to start however small they need to to build the business, I think it's really important. One of the things that we've done as an independent sponsor is have that ability to start small. So in my in my prior life, we were trying to write 200 to 400 million dollar equity checks. That's usually not realistic as an independent sponsor. But we have invested across our four platforms over well over 200 million dollars. So we've built pretty big companies often starting small. We have an anesthesia platform that we've uh, helped create called National Partners in Healthcare. The first deal we did there had $451,000 of EBITDA, nine providers. Three years later, that platform is up closer to 300 providers. So that flexibility to start small, on the one hand, it's adding complications because there's there isn't management in place. There isn't infrastructure in place. We had to build that on all of our, ourselves. It adds complexity on the one hand, but on the other hand, we get to control the quality of that infrastructure build to our own standards rather than taking the risk of looking at somebody else's platform where they may be covering a bunch of warts or have done some questionable M&A deals right up before they sell, and then we're stuck holding the bag after you win the auction. One of the things that if you could speak to a younger version of you, a less seasoned version of you, would you suggest starting small as on kind of your, your first deal, your first deal in the healthcare arena? Yeah, I would start small. I think the one of the challenges of being an independent sponsor is finding the capital, obviously. And so you have to find the deals first, and then you have to do the diligence, get conviction around that deal. You can't screw it up or your career as an independent sponsor is going to be really short. And all that takes a lot of time. And then once you've done that, then you got to go hit the fundraising circuit. You want to have your initial targets 
be patient sellers. Often I found folks who are going to roll over into the deal or something like that is very important because they need to understand how the funding model works and how much time it takes. And that's easier, I think, with a, with a smaller group uh, than it is with a big company that's maybe looking to maximize value in the near term and, and have a date certain in mind when they want to close. That makes a ton of sense. Is there anything else that you would, if you're, again, talking to a relative newcomer to the independent sponsor world, whether it's healthcare specific or just generalized, any piece of advice that you wish you had when you were first starting out that you feel like you can relate to that sort of audience right now? So coming out of a larger sponsor background, I thought that it would take a lot more money to go find deals. You know, because you got to pay the consultants and you got to fly first class and you got to chase auctions and spend all this money on diligence. And then it turned out that that was totally not necessary. So there's a lot you can do being scrappy and gritty when you're running a private equity firm out of your personal bank account. It forces some discipline on you around the kind of deals you look at and how you're spending your time, how you're spending your money on diligence. And so I would encourage young folks thinking about going the independent sponsor direction, don't be scared off or don't be discouraged by how much you you might need to spend on diligence. You can usually tamp that down, make it more manageable. The second thing that I would encourage folks to do is really use your relationships. I was fortunate in that I had been in private equity for many years uh, before I struck out on my own, but I was really heartened by the support that I got from CEOs that I had worked with and folks in the industry that I had worked with. You get a lot of support from people when you take a risk and do something entrepreneurial, and you can use that support once you get out on your own ask people what they see as interesting happening in the market, ask folks to be advisors to you, use that network. I found that I got a lot more credit for being entrepreneurial. CEOs started to treat me a little bit more like one of them, somebody who's taken real personal risk and operating risk rather than a being just another private equity guy in New York, kind of sitting pretty with a big salary and not having to do deals are having to not matter so much if they worked out or not. That I found to be a real a real benefit when I set out on my own. And then the third thing I would say that was a big change to the good that I, I wasn't expecting was in a large institutional private equity environment, there are lots of meetings, lots of memos, lots of committees. Your Monday meeting goes from being two hours to six hours to eight hours as you get more senior. And taking that out of the equation unlocks a lot of capacity. So I found that I was able to get a lot more done without those kind of institutional burdens on me when I went on on my own. Great. I mean, it sounds like uh, being lean and nimble is really the advantage here. And if you're willing to take the risk and can make the right connections, then you've got a lot more uh, flexibility. Yeah, exactly. It's about being lean and nimble, but usually you think of lean and nimble being fast. In this case, we're lean and nimble, <laughs> but pretty slow. Uh, to Got it. Deal <laughs> Makes perfect sense. 
Well, switching gears a little, Harry, this has obviously been one of the uh, most bizarre years or 18 months or so that I've certainly worked through. Would love to hear a bit of a roundup from you of how you viewed the the market trends over the last year to, to 18 months in terms of the activity and, and what's been going on in the industry. There's quite a bit of activity, clearly, I mean, across all sectors and healthcare in particular. I think the COVID crisis was really clarifying in a number of ways for folks in healthcare. Uh, first, it was a reminder of why we do what we do. We had a investment in an anesthesia company where we picked really high quality anesthesiologists to be our partners. When COVID hit, they were on the front lines. They showed up. They supported the hospitals and the surgeons that they were working with. And there were other groups where their physicians, you know, when the chips were down, they didn't, they didn't turn up. It was a reminder that you know, we are here to support healthcare providers. And uh, it was just really encouraging to see that, you know, we've built a quality network and, uh, and they really came through when needed. It's an interesting observation, Harry, in terms of how your providers responded. We obviously have a pretty broad cross-section of the market in terms of the funds that we work with and and others that we see out there. And I think there was a really broad cross-section in terms of how different groups fed over COVID and how the different platforms and the groups of physicians and other providers really reacted. Because we had, I mean, as I'm sure you know, I mean, there was a lot of businesses that were very concerned with respect to cash flow and liquidity mm-hmm. in the early stages when it was very unclear how how long shutdowns may last and and what exactly the impact was going to be and whether the government was going to do anything. And I think, frankly, there was a lot to be said for the importance of culture in these companies during this crisis. And I think culture really had a strong impact on how the company fed throughout. And so I'd be curious on on what you saw around that, not just with your companies, but outside of that in the market. Yeah, so we were we were in the middle of due diligence on a company when COVID hit. And it was very unclear as to whether the deal was going to be able to get done. But we did help the company think through liquidity issues, think about how to handle COVID inside their organization. We put together what best practices were across our portfolio and and help them just trying to support, even though it wasn't a portfolio company, just trying to support this group, uh, trying to get through a challenging time. At the same time, we got to see how they behaved in the crisis. And to your point, Holly, they had a really strong culture and it held up. In the crisis, and they did a they did a, a great job of treating their employees fairly, serving their community, maintaining high morale, and you know making sacrifices in order to to keep serving that community. So it wound up being an interesting time where you got to see how people behave in a foxhole. Deals are always stressful, and there's always you know they can be revealing in terms of people's personality. But this this test was was much bigger. One of the things that we did through COVID, we stuck by all of our portfolio companies. We stuck by all of the deals that we had under LOI. We did not use it as a reason 
to retrade or try to be grabby. And we closed on the transactions that we had under LOI pre-COVID. And, uh, you know, we closed with them. Sometimes we, we may have changed the structure around a little bit to reflect the risks at the time. But we didn't try to take a pound of flesh or, or use it as an opportunity to, to retrade because, you know, you, it became clear that, that the COVID impact, while there would be long-term lingering effects, that, that real crunch last year was, was somewhat temporary. Harry, in terms of the rest of 2021, we're certainly seeing a lot of deals that may have otherwise been 2022 deals getting pulled forward with the goal of closing before December 31st for a variety of reasons, including just, you know, folks getting to be continually nervous about tax changes. Are you seeing the same thing as us? And, and I assume the answer there is yes, but just want to be curious in terms of just different markers, market sectors and what they're seeing. Yes and no. So there was a lot of talk and a lot of concern around tax changes around long-term capital gains and that, that if somebody was thinking about selling in 2022 or 2023 to try to get the sale done in 2021, that was a really kind of active discussion over the summer, especially among physician groups that a lot of times they do really you know, make decisions you know, based on taxes. But I think that there is some reality setting in, first of all, that the tax changes you know, may not be uh, as drastic as, as folks feared, but also that in the scheme of things, picking a partner, picking a, a financial partner, capital partner is a really big decision, and you have to pick the right one. You shouldn't let some concern about tax policy drive you into the arms of a of somebody who's not your right, not the right partner. And so I've been somewhat encouraged with a bunch of groups that thought they had to rush and get something done by the end of the year that as they've seen what's out there, they're starting to take their time and realize that, you know, over the course of a career, especially if a, if a group is going to be rolling equity and, and picking a partner or building a platform over time, that's way more important than the year to year changes in tax rates. That's interesting, and and that's encouraging because we do certainly had a little bit more doom and gloom forecasts from some other folks and thinking that, you know, we're going to have such a glut of deals that close in the next three and a half months that things are going to just completely fall off quarter one of 2022. But I fully take your point in that from a long-term perspective, particularly when so much of the value of one of these transactions is embedded in rollover equity, that having the right partner to maximize value going forward is so much more important than the ups and downs in tax laws that, you know, frankly, could look different this year to next year to two years from now. That's just interesting feedback, and I'm glad to hear it. Well, and it also helps us with in terms of picking the types of folks who we want to be partnered with, too, because if somebody does want to run headlong into a sale by 12-31-21 and they don't care who it's to, they're just trying to maximize cash in their pocket today, that's not a good partner for us. And if those are their, their priorities, that's fine. One of the things that I would caution against for any physician groups that are thinking that way is that you're opening yourself up not only to somebody who could be a bad 
long-term partner, but you're given all the negotiating leverage to the other party. And, you know, the deal you think you have in uh, October or November 2021 may not be the same as the deal you wind up with by 1231. I will co-sign that because certainly I've had a number of times in, in my career where just the time pressure has on both sides, on both buy and sell sides, have led to taking terms that could have been more favorable if everyone was willing to take a breath. Absolutely. In terms of just healthcare specifically, is there an area in healthcare and this is something I'd like to hear from both you and Holly on that you believe are going to be the next kind of big area of new investment from private equity from independent sponsors. I have spent a lot of time in physician services, and I think that there will be continued investment there from independent sponsors, from traditional sponsors. We're still in the early to middle innings, depending on the specialty. There's still a need for capital, a need for management talent that private equity can bring in, benefits to scale, and so reasons for these physicians to, if they want to remain independent, to think about a capital partner. And so there are some specialties that are very far along in terms of the consolidation trends, you know, things like uh, dermatology and the like. But then there are others that are where it's early, cardiovascular, women's health, some of these areas where I think sponsors like us who have a playbook, have a history of, of working with physicians and building companies will continue to be active for a while. I also think that we're seeing real depth in the market for exits of these physician services businesses, whether it's a public, taking them public or selling to a larger private equity firm to, to take them into the next phase of growth or, or to a strategic. So I, I think that this whole area has a lot of runway left to go. I'll add to that. And I, I totally agree, Harry. And I think that there are some areas like dermatology and dental that we thought would already dried up by now, but are still going incredibly strong. And I feel like dental deals will just keep going for forever. The area I would talk about a little bit is outside of the physician provider services realm, and that's digital health and healthcare IT. I think we're just seeing a tremendous amount of interest and growing volume in that area. I think some of that was inevitable. Some of it was propelled forward more by COVID with telemedicine and other digital solutions to remote care. But I think also as other macro trends in the healthcare industry, such as the declining workforce, aging baby boomers, and so forth, create the need to do more with less. And that's what drives technology. So I think we will continue to see an increase in traction on deals in in healthcare IT. And I think there's going to be a real race to consume the the valuable assets in that sector. Yeah, I I totally agree. I've spent a lot of time in healthcare IT and tech-enabled services in my career. One of the things that I've found has been the best way to approach that sector is through starting with a problem that needs to get solved. And usually that's informed by uh, 
executives at a at a payer or a provider or clinicians who have something that they're trying to to fix in workflow or revenue cycle management or clinical management or whatnot. Once you find these areas that need fixing, then going and finding smaller companies or finding management teams that can build products to to solve these challenges. It's very hard as an independent sponsor to just show up at an auction or some fundraise for a big hyped up healthcare IT business. And so we still have to be a little bit scrappier and probably a little bit more early if we're going to participate in, in some of these health tech businesses. Switching gears a bit, one of the things that I'm curious on in terms of just the bigger, broader independent sponsor market, and I, I tend to ask this every time I talk to an independent sponsor in kind of a, a more formal context because it interests me because I'm also having the back-end conversations with the bankers as well. And we're obviously seeing a lot of options deals at this point. Harry, do you steer away from those deals or are, are you willing to participate in auction deals? And if so, what is the reaction that you get as an independent sponsor and has it modified over the past five or six years? That's a good question. Let me start with the reaction, which is that it is less of a barrier than you would think. So every time we've wanted to participate in an auction where we've had some expertise in the sector or had an angle or a management team that we were working with, and we reached out to a banker to try to get included, we've been allowed in. So I think the perception that fundless sponsors can't close or can't post, I think is starting to to wane a lot. That said, I find it hard to justify the time and money spent on an auction. There are lots of great companies that get auctioned, but a lot of times the winner is the group that's willing to go really hard at diligence early and spend money on McKinsey or BCG or Bain or LEK do their Q of E soon, and still only have one in four or five chance. And so that's, I just find that that's, that doesn't work for the kind of resources we have and, and the kind of time we have. We really do try to focus on proprietary deals where, where we're much more involved in building the company from scratch early on. And Sometimes those companies need 10 or $20 million in equity, and sometimes they need, they need 100 or $200 million in equity. And uh, we're going after these sectors because we're passionate about them and we see problems that need to be fixed or, or areas for a, a company that does things a little bit different than other competitors. That just lends itself, I think. This business building lends itself to a little bit more proprietary deals. Great. So, Harry, just as a final kind of wrap-up question, and this is my favorite question to ask everyone, what are you most excited about for next year? I'm really excited about our portfolio. We launched two new platforms this year, one in orthopedics called M2 Orthopedics, one in ophthalmology called Panorama, both of which have great physician leadership, physician partners, great clinical models, great management teams, and a lot of runway. So that's super exciting. One of our other portfolio companies, Vera Whole Health, just raised 
a large round from Clayton Duvalier and Rice, and then from the Morgan Health arm of J.P. Morgan. Zara is working to kind of replace the space that was created when Haven Health uh, fell apart, the Haven, the JV between Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon and, and J.P. Morgan. And there's a lot to do with empowering primary care and taking care of the under 65 population. We're very actively uh, involved with our portfolio companies and supporting them and, and excited to see them grow. And then at the same time, there's a fair amount of interesting stuff in the pipeline. There are entire sectors within healthcare that could benefit from the shift from inpatient to outpatient or from fee-for-service to value-based care. And you know, we want to be right at the intersection of all that stuff. So really excited about the deals we have in the ground and then also excited about you know, learning new sectors and, and taking some of what we've learned from partnering with over a thousand physicians to new subspecialty. Harry, I want to want to thank you for all your thoughts here today. I can again just say from personal experience that I've seen you with you know fifty balls in the air before and and get a deal done in a really impressive manner. And I've enjoyed working with you. And I think you do a lot of really good lessons to pass along to the independent sponsor community. One of the things I like most about this community is how collaborative it is and how willing almost every most more seasoned independent sponsor I run into is to share knowledge with, you know, folks that are newer, just starting out, just being introduced to the space. I think because so much of this community is really hyper-focused on certain sectors and really doing what you do well, which makes it a little bit, you know, in some ways unique and less competitive than other kind of forms of investing. And Holly, I also want to say thank you for bringing your expertise in both healthcare and healthcare transactions to this conversation. Trebek, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. And Harry, it's been great to reconnect with you again. Yeah, thanks, Holly. Uh, thanks, Rebecca. I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal by Deal, a McGuire Woods Independent Sponsor Podcast. To learn more about today's discussion and our commitment to the independent sponsor community, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.